Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, cultural enrichment, and all-inclusive fares. Discover more at viking.com. This is Money Beat from the Wall Street Journal. Everything you need to know about money and the markets, and then some. Coming up on the Money Beat podcast, stock market trying to rally, can't quite get there, and they have a big catalyst coming up, which could be good or bad, and that is earnings. WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously. Welcome to Money Beat on Monday. I am Paul Vigna, and obviously, because I'm sitting here in front of a microphone doing my job, I did not win the Powerball lottery over the weekend. Uh, it's a big conversation on Friday. If you all were listening, uh, yeah, I didn't win. So I will go out and buy another ticket, though, because, hey, one point. Wednesday, th- come on. Wednesday. It's, now it's up to $1.4 billion. How can you not take a bet on $1.4 billion, Steve Grosser? You can't. You can't. No. Uh, but your odds of losing are, are very, very large. In fact, you're almost guaranteed to lose. But you're going to lose very little money. So, well, it depends how much you put in. I don't know, but I mean, in. even if I, you know, I, I take, buy $2 worth of tickets, I'm going to have a lot of enjoyment thinking about right. how I'm going to spend that $1.3 billion. Uh, $2, that's, that's, you know, that's more than a, can get you more than a gallon of gas these days, which yeah. makes me think about the oil markets. Here's my awkward segue to the, to the real world. Uh, another losing bet today is just about anything in the capital markets. Another bad day on Wall Street, terrible day in China overnight, and oil down almost 6%, under $32 a barrel. Um, that rally this morning lasted 26 minutes, Christine. It was short-lived, and um, we saw last week the worst week to start a new year on record for the S&P and the Dow Jones Industrial Average. Concerns about global growth were weighing then, which um, you know you can see a little bit of that in terms of demand for oil as well. And as we start a new week here, uh, earnings season kicks off tonight, Monday night, after the close with Alcoa reporting. And earnings really seem to be capturing now the attention of the the markets as they move forward and and try to make up some of that lost ground in the first week of January. That was a much better segue into a new topic, by the way. Yeah, let's talk about earnings. I mean, look, the markets are careening. Things are are not really stabilizing. You can see equities today trying to eke out some kind of rally, but they're having a lot of trouble. The next big... um, What's the word I'm looking for? Somebody help me. The, the next big thing. On investors' minds. On investors what they're going to be keeping an There's eye on. There's a word for it, but I'm, I'm, I'm flaking on it. Is, is as you say, Christian, earnings. But uh, er, earnings don't look like they're going to be very good this time around, are they? No. Um, setting up for a third straight quarter of declines for the S&P 500, down 5.3%. That's the latest estimate. From FactSet, if you strip out energy, which we know has obviously the energy sector has taken a beating and S&P earnings as a whole because of this mm-hmm. huge decline in oil, if you take out the energy sector, earnings for the last quarter of 2015 are expected to be flat. So even excluding um, energy, we certainly aren't looking at any major profit growth, right. which has weight on the, uh, the stock market. It, it did in 2015. And there are some expectations that the earnings picture will improve in 2016. But of course, we heard that story at the beginning of 2015. And, and keep, look how that played out. And keep in mind, um, people are going to 
earnings are backwards looking, right? That's what's happened in the past, what, what, the, what happened in the company's last quarter. What people are going to pay a lot of attention to is what the CEOs, what the CFOs say mm-hmm. about earnings going forward. Sure, a lot of the analysts have good remarks about where they think earnings are going in 2016, but the stock market is telling us that there's a lot of skepticism about that thesis, that this might not be a year of increased profitability, or at least not as much increased profitability as people might have priced into stocks last year. So they're bringing down those estimates. It speaks to two things. I mean, the Fed always said oil and the rising dollar were transitory, and they're not looking that transitory. Right. And look, the the reality is if – if this earnings season turns in another negative performance, this is what we expect. That's a third consecutive season that corporate profits have contracted, not by a huge amount, but the the bottom line. I think, Kristen, you pointed they are not growing, and people were really, they are not growing. People were That's really hoping that you'd see a lot more spending and therefore higher corporate profits going along with the fall of oil prices because that's supposed to put more money in a consumer's pocket. When you're not seeing that, it casts doubt on that whole thesis. What if people aren't spending the additional income that they get to keep because they're not spending it at the gas pump? If they're not doing that, it might not matter how low oil prices go. And and it goes to the whole argument of people say, well, if you strip out the energy sector, things look better. But every other company is supposed to get some kind of benefit from low oil prices. You're not. See- you look at sales. You are not seeing it overall. And for a long time, sales have been weak, and people have been pointing to it, and everyone's ignored it because profit growth was still there. N- now, profit growth isn't there either. Right. I think the big focus increasingly turns toward sales because you can only manipulate earnings, implement cost cuts, etc., for so long. Um, and revenues this quarter for the well, I guess the previous quarter. What what is about to start being reported uh, yeah. tonight on Monday night? Uh, revenues are expected to fall for the S and P five hundred for a fourth straight quarter, and so there there isn't a lot of optimism out there that those are going to rebound anytime soon. The big factor there is global demand, um, not only demand in the U S. but in the S and P five hundred. Almost 30% of sales come from outside of North America. So the global picture certainly matters, too. And that really gets hurt by the strong dollar, right? If American companies trying to sell things around the world, the stronger the dollar gets, uh, the less and, – and demand around the world also gets hurt by weak oil because we have lots of countries that are oil producers. Mm-hmm. As their income is falling, their ability to buy American products falls as well. One of the things I'd also like to say is just a point, you know – we talk about the international and the market turmoil has been really driven by concerns about, obviously, China. However, the Russell 2000 is within points of crossing into bear uh, territory, bear market. And that is the companies that supposedly get most of their sales right. from the U.S. and everyone. Smaller companies, mainly domestically domestic focused companies. Should be, should be immune to the, you know, the problems overseas. Right. They're getting they, – they got hit harder last week. They were down 79 Compared to, I think seven, just over seven for the S and P, and they are getting hit harder in the in you know in this pullback than that, and that's I think really fascinating. It's not just showing a lack of confidence and concern overseas; they're actually hitting. They're right. showing a lot of concern about the U.S. Well, I, I think a lot of this has to do with um, a confounding of investor expectations. When you have uh, very little unemployment, 
and you have a and you have falling as gas officially measured right as well you know still yeah. you should when you look at these numbers and see five percent unemployment and you see gas prices falling right you right. should see people out there buying yes. things that should be raising corporate profitability the fact that we're not seeing that I think has a lot of people worried that something may be different that that your ideas about right. what used to improve corporate earnings don't apply anymore and that's got people frightened and I think that's why they're willing to pay a lot less for the stocks that they were before. Right. I think right. I think this conversation has taken on one point to me. We should all go buy Powerball tickets. It's the only hope. The only hope. It's your only hope. Only hope. Uh, listen, let's take a break. On the other side, we will we're going to keep talking about earnings. We're going to drill down and talk about bank earnings. That is the first big sector that comes in as a group. So let's take a break and we'll come back and talk about the banks. Enjoy our shows on your device. Look for us on iTunes, Stitcher, and at WSJ.com slash podcasts. Now, Money Beat. Welcome to the Monday, 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 Monday Money Beat podcast. I am Paul Vigna, Stephen Grosser. Uh, you know, it's funny at the top, we didn't mention anybody who's in the studio today. So it's uh, Grosser and myself, John Carney, Kristen Schuller, and Aaron Lucchetti now sitting in to talk about bank earnings. Can somebody explain to me, and I, I got to tell you, honestly, I have had a problem with bank earnings forever because they just appear to be a complete black box to me that these banks can make the numbers do whatever they really want them to do in any given quarter. Explain to me why I should care about what these numbers look like next week. Well, this week. This week, yes, that's right. Starting this week week into next week. um, Well, there is a little uh, black box effect with bank earnings. It's very hard to tell um, how they earn things. But, I mean, as evidence that they can't really make them do what they want, they keep disappointing investors quarter after quarter. So whatever used to work to, you know, let them, you know, set where they want earnings to be and then backwork the numbers isn't working anymore. Um, And particularly, they disclose a lot more than they used to. You used to get a lot less information from banks on their earnings. Now we get things like what the thick revenue numbers were and what the what you, all the various lines that come in in banks. And I think that's made it harder for them to you know you know manipulate numbers. Mm-hmm. And you know it, it's looking pretty bad for banks again this quarter. Um, people have been waiting for the banks to turn for bank earnings to you know start to really really get better. Uh, again, and even though banks, you know, have improved, they're a lot more stable than they ever were, and they and their earnings aren't, you know, they're no longer losing money like they did, you know, during the financial crisis. Their earnings have consistently been disappointing year after year after year. Yeah, and and that's that that hits the nail right on the head. I mean, the the good thing about the bank earnings is that they're more predictable. There are fewer surprises. But the problem is they disappoint almost quarter after quarter, and the surprises they're leaving behind are mostly these big profit gains that the trading desk used to generate. They never would really tell you how. They would just be you know, fortuitous uh, positioning, and, and, and they would blow out the quarter and fix. That doesn't happen much anymore. If you look at the quarters recently, the trading numbers not only are smaller than they used to be, but they're much closer together. There's a lot less variance between the best bank performance and the worst bank performance, but it's not very good performance. 
And FIC, FIC is uh, fixed income commodities and currencies, right? Correct. Um, nice. That was the, the test. Thank you, thank you. That was that was the. We've referenced it twice. We might as well explain. That was the engine it. of bank profits uh, yeah. for the big giant Wall Street firms for years. This is where Citigroup, uh, which you know Goldman, uh, J.P. Morgan. This is where they, you know, Merrill Lynch, and then in the old days, yeah. you know, Bear Stearns and Lehman Brothers really made their money. That's where the black box label was. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. And this. Uh, uh, the, the, um, not only the profitability of these places are way down, but the but the just the revenue is way down in part because of the activity, the kind of the amount of trading they do is way off. You can see this when you look at the broad trading numbers. Um, fewer bonds are traded. The volume of commodities trading is is down a lot. The volume of currency trading is down. It gets picked up every now and then when there's some wild spike. You know, if if Switzerland you know unpegs something, then sure you get a little bump. But uh, that often catches the banks off guard and right. does, and doesn't help their rev- their revenues very much at all. So they have been uh, they're reliant on their clients. They can't do prop trading in a lot of instruments these days. So they because of the Volcker rule. So they're reliant on clients to come to them and have a view of the way interest rates are going to go and try to trade a position around that. They haven't been able to do that for years now, and it's really hurt. But there is a rainbow at the end of this cloudy conversation, and that is higher interest rates. The banks finally got them in December, and we'll start to see the tail end of that. Um, There's some debate about whether we'll see it this quarter when J.P. Morgan starts reporting results on Thursday or whether it'll take another quarter to really see the impact. But interest rates went up for the first time in a long, long time, and banks generally like that because they hike the rates on loans right away. You pay more as a borrower, uh, but you don't get that money in the deposit side right away. It takes a few quarters. So banks should make better Profit margins may happen this quarter, may happen next quarter, but that is a big bright spot uh, going forward, especially for the likes of B of A and Wells Fargo. Is that is that spot going to be as bright as they hope, though? I mean, you look at what the bond market's doing these days. Right. So it may may not be. um, One, because money market funds are going to try to steal away a lot of the deposits. This could put pressure on the banks to actually raise the amount they're paying their customers um, at a much faster clip than before. They may not have the ability to wait two, three, four quarters, you know, 50 basis points in, before they start paying their retail customers more. And so there, there's the, that old system um, where banks keep the first 20 basis points of an interest rate hike may not work for as long as it used to. That, that's a good point. Money market funds, though, are in the new uh, territory as well. This is the first interest rate uh, increase cycle we've seen since the new regulations came in place post-crisis. So it'll be really interesting to see how the consumer reacts this time. Uh, hasn't really happened before this way, coming off such low levels and with the new regulations in place for the money market funds. How, how badly do they need my money? You talk about deposit rates and, and what they pay. And you talk about, you know, that they make so much money off trade. How badly do they, do they even need my deposit? Well, they don't treat this, me like they need my deposit. Is this before or after you win the Powerball, though? <laughs> well, it's Monday, so before. Right, it's okay. before. Um, most banks are washing deposits. They don't really need it, although they do price your money more than a fast-trading hedge fund because from a regulatory perspective, the regulators basically say, you know, Paul's money is sticky. He's not going to run out, you know, as soon as uh, something gets nervous because it's probably FDIC insured. Hedge funds are a different story. Right. So what, what happened was the regulators put in place uh, the requirements that banks have enough money, enough funding in place that so that if money runs out for 30 days, they'll still be stable and secure. 
the the rules assume that people like you and I don't run away from banks you know very quickly but that corporations particularly financial corporations hedge funds insurance companies will pull their money out as fast as they can so actually they you know they they do like deposits they like retail deposits those are advantaged it's an accident that wasn't what regulators were trying to do but it does make uh retail deposits more valuable uh, particularly, you know, sizable retail deposits, yeah. um, you know, not in the millions, but, you know, people who have pretty big savings accounts, banks like them. In the what, next, oh, I have a question. I, I would like to sort of get an idea of what of what banks are going to sort of be um, best positioned to, ha- you know, to have good earnings this quarter versus which ones are, you know, going to struggle a little bit more. I mean, the shorthand that, that we've been seeing is that the more heavily invested you are in trading businesses, like a Goldman Sachs and a Morgan Stanley, the tougher it's going to be, the more consumer-oriented you are, like a Wells Fargo or a B of A, it's been, it's been a little bit more of a positive outlook. That's, that's a general shorthand. I mean, the problem with trading is that it, it, it takes a while for the consumer to get back, I'm sorry, for the, for the investor to get back into the mix on trading. They've been back on their heels so long. And also, last week, you know, the, the bank stocks were down, what, 10%? What what was driving that? And like uh, you know, ahead of the earnings, was it just that they'd had too much of a run up um, ahead of the you know the Fed uh, raising rates? That's a big part of it. There was a lot of positive sentiment in the stocks, and these are huge global companies. Uh, and, and so you see Citigroup sell off. You know, as as global stock markets fall, the banks go right with it. They've become very volatile stocks. So if the market's up five percent, you can count on banks to be up seven or eight. Same with the other way around. Also, a lot of the banks have needed, uh, depended a lot on equities trading recently because bond trading has been so bad. When you have equities markets that are behaving as volatile as they are now, that scares your customers, your retail uh, brokerage customers. Mm-hmm. Don't want anything to do with this kind of market. That hurts your ability to make money on the on the one thing that had been working out pretty well. So it's very possible that the banks are going to that this coming year is going to be bad for retail brokerage. So that hurts Morgan Stanley. It hurts J.P. Morgan. It hurts all the banks that have big retail equities brokerages. All right. Let's uh, we'll take one more break. When we come back on the other side, we are going to pay pay tribute to a a musical pioneer and a financial pioneer. This message is brought to you by Nuveen. Nuveen has provided investment excellence for 125 years. A lot has changed, but one thing that remains constant, including the different types of durable income in portfolios, can help investors meet their goals. With expertise across income and alternatives, Nuveen continues to expand its capabilities while maintaining its legacy as a leading investment manager. Visit Nuveen.com to learn more. Investing involves risk. Loss of principle is possible. Coffee? Check. Earbuds? Check. Make us part of your morning routine. WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously. Now, Money Beat. Everything you need to know about money and the markets. And then some. You know, it occurs to me that that's actually a pretty good song for anybody who thought the stock market was never going to go down again and is finding themselves shocked in January 2016. But what we really want to talk about for just a couple of minutes here is David Bowie, who died over the weekend, 69 years old, had a, a pretty long fight with cancer that they didn't tell anybody about. Nobody knew that he was, except for people in his tightest inner circle, nobody knew that he was actually sick. So now he is, he is passed on. And the tributes are pouring in. But one of the things that was sort of interesting and it allows us to talk about it uh, is the fact that 
he was actually a financial pioneer as well. Uh, does anyone remember the Bowie Bonds? 1997, I think it was. 1997. He, he, they launched the Prudential, I think, was a firm that... Uh, they bought them all bought, up. Bought them all right, up. Yeah. Right, But he bought, launched the Bowie, uh, Bowie Bonds, 10 years. Uh, they matured uh, in 2007. And it's basically what it happened was he was sort of stuck in this. He realized he was in this contract with his former, I think, manager. And he essentially, um, that gave his manager 50% of the, yeah. sort of the revenue right, right. from his his uh, tw- I think twenty five albums, so he sold the rights to that to buy the manager right. out. So it wasn't a bad idea. The idea is you invest in these and you are getting a claim on the the future royalty cash flow of David Bowie's music, which in nineteen ninety seven seemed like a sure bet, right? I mean, the guy's got a huge songbook, world famous act, but the Bonds did not. Uh, they didn't do so well. I didn't. I don't think they ever really defaulted. But by the they time got, they got down, Moody's downgraded well, them to exactly. one notch below, above uh, junk. Right, right. They got they got downgraded because the timing was so bad. Because what happened was after they issued the bonds, the whole music industry changed. changed yeah. And what had previously been a surefire cash flow stream was suddenly not there anymore. It was just gone. Yeah. People stopped buying albums, CDs, right. Right. this. You know, you had Napster. Right. ITunes, so right. It, it seems like not a bad idea, right? You're, you're investing in an artist who, look, if you're a commercial artist in any medium, really, you are a commercial enterprise. And, you you know, it, it should kind of work. But it's a, it's a very risky thing. And in 1997, keep, keep in mind when they first uh, sold these things, nobody had any idea what was going to happen to the music yeah, industry. No. So, the, the, right. you know, the, the digitalization of music hadn't happened yet. And so, you know, there, were, there was Napster, right? But that was illegal. And yes. so nobody knew that, you know, we were going to have iTunes. Well, was and, even Napster and, and, around and, in 97 at that point? You, 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 Napster so. existed in the 90s, yes. Yeah. Uh, no, I knew in the 90s, but in that early? I, I think it existed in, in, in 97. Well, at least, we, at least we, had pirated, we had pirated digital music, um, right. not to reveal too much of my own digital past. <laughs> but I mean, uh, whatever the dates are, the point is that the music industry changed overnight. Right. And, and you know, I mean, the, it, 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 like the, the change overnight is a good thing. Um, one, of, one, of my fav- yeah. one of my favorite David Bowie lines is, uh, I don't know where I'm going from here, but I promise it won't be boring. That's a great story for, you know, 2016 markets. We don't know where it's going. But I promise you, it's not going to be a boring year. John Carney comes prepared nice. with a David Bowie quote. I think he should just drop the mic and he, I think end he just the show did. now. The, John yeah. Carney just dropped the mic, everybody. All right, we're going to leave it there. Uh, David Bowie, great career. Gave us a lot of good things, a lot of joy over the years. We, we wish him well in his next journey into outer space. Uh, this is the Money Beat Podcast, everybody. We will talk to you later in the week. WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously. Zscaler extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines trained by 500 trillion daily signals to prevent ransomware and AI attacks that target business. Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI. Learn more at zscaler.com slash zero trust AI.